A threat is a multi-generational, multimedia portrait of black men sharing their wisdom, engaging anecdotes, and life lessons on how to deal with racism, being a threat, and negative stereotypes surrounding black males. This is episode two of A Threat, the podcast. And what I'm doing here is, you know what I thought? If I'm gonna ask other people to do the podcast, why not do it myself? I can't ask of others what I'm not able or willing to do myself, you know? But it was kind of weird to, it was kind of weird to, I, I can't just be on the podcast by myself. So I had, had my sister who's gonna do an interview of me for the podcast. And uh, his name is Dr. Shandrika Moss-Bodine. I'm going to take a passenger seat and let her host and read my bio and ask me the questions and just have at it for this second episode. So there you go, sis. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, hello, everyone. Before we get started, I just want to say tonight is a very odd night to do this podcast because it's June 13th, 2020. And as we are speaking, um, the Wendy's in Atlanta is burning. It's burning down. Yeah. I was was reading, it was, that's the place where, where he was uh, murdered, correct? Right. And so I did want to take this moment to say his name and that is Rayshard Brooks. That's where he fell asleep at the drive-through and the whole altercation happened. It's just really, it's something to see. It's something to to witness, really. So I'm glad that we're doing this podcast to talk about these issues. Yeah, Rayshard Brooks. Rayshard say. Rest in peace. Yes, rest in peace. And our thoughts and our prayers are with his family. And I have a seven-year-old, so I my heart just goes out to this young lady um, who does not quite understand that that was the last birthday that her father would see of hers on this earth. So um, I am just heart my heart breaks for all of the children because that's something that we don't really talk about are all the children of the victims yeah that's true i feel like that's another important thing that of why i'm doing this podcast is is for that reason is when they're shooting someone or beating someone up or stopping them or talking to them crazy, these uh, 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 police officers, mm-hmm. when they're talking to citizens crazy and all this, they're not even thinking of them as human. Right. And, um, they're not thinking of they have a daughter or a wife or a mother or, or, or all the lives that are affected by the way they interact with one person, you know what I'm saying? Right. And I think that's so very unfortunate. It was years ago, I was talking to one of my coworkers, I was working on this TV show when, I believe it was Philando Castile, mm-hmm. was murdered. 
And we just had to have a moment because we were one of the handful of black people who were working on this show. Mm-hmm. And we just needed a moment because, you know, to kind of digest or work through the trauma of seeing mm-hmm. someone who looks like you being virally murdered again and again. And he was like, yo, what do you, how do you think that they view us? Because mm-hmm. a lot of them, you know, that Philando Castile, like after he shot him, he was screaming, like, I told him not to reach for it. And, da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. I was, and I was like, I don't know, man. I was like, I feel like, I don't know, but I feel like they may look at us like a spider in their, in their apartment. Like some something just just like their fear of us or hate towards us justifies the murder of us. And it's like, I mean, not to com- compare a human right. to a spider, but I'm just, just giving that analogy just as an example of, it's like, yo, it's like, your your fear of something shouldn't justify you killing right. me. Right, exactly. Your fear should not justify that you can kill me. And I, I just, it's really out of control. And I also feel like we're just at the point, and I still don't think everyone understands it, like how do we function like that? These things are happening all around us and people are still expecting work to be done. So it's not like you can, I mean, you can, but it would not be looked on favorably probably by a company. If you were like, you know, I can't come in today. I'm dealing with the trauma of another black man or a black woman being killed mm-hmm. um, virally. I, I think that that's like, you know, I don't know if if people who are not black, if they understand the constant trauma of that, what that does to a psyche. It's so interesting also to hear the inverse viewpoints of, of perspectives. Mm-hmm. And I really loathe, I mean, I loathe when people say, what about black on black crime like that it makes me so upset because here's the difference if anyone who has that perspective is listening the difference is this if i shoot someone who happens to be black what happens to me i get arrested i go to trial i go to jail police officer shoots me they get fired that's the difference. If I'm unarmed and I'm, and I'm murdered by police, the difference is they get fired. But if a citizen kills another citizen, they're criminals, they're murderers, and they go to jail. So that's the difference. So I'm just really, it just makes me sick to my stomach when I hear people say the, that, black on, what about black on black crime? What about the violence? I was like, yeah, but criminals are, are prosecuted. So let's treat them like the criminals that they are and the murderers that they are. Right. And I know when I was listening to the news today, they were saying there's all this emphasis on the protesters being nonviolent, but what about the police officers being nonviolent? Yeah. You know, it's like, you, you know, the catalyst. Have both ways. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's just, and I know that it's so sad to see um, a building burn down, but it's, I just feel like people feel so helpless. And I also feel like that's not being recognized either. Cause it's like you, you know, there were peaceful protests going on in Atlanta and all over the world. And there are still black people getting murdered by police that are unarmed for, you know, very petty things. During the protest, protests are still going on right now and there's, and the police still are killing us right now. Right now, despite it, protests. Yeah, it's like right. was the, the whole, the, the globe is recognizing the racism against black folks and they're still doing it. And I mean, I don't know all the ins and outs because this is an, uh, uh, Richard's uh, murder is, is new. But right. you know, like we was chopping up a little bit earlier, it's just like these cowardly, scary police officers, they just need to get a, they just need to get a beat down. Like, yes. I mean, if, uh, uh, what I understand about the story is he was drunk, sleeping in his car. Mm-hmm. Police stopped him, tried to apprehend him. They get in a little struggle in a fight. The police officer get his taser taken away. Mm-hmm. And then he tries to run. And then, the, and then the police officer shoots and murders him. But it's right. like... Right, it's like he was asleep in his car. There was no reason to chase him because they already had his information. They could have arrested him later. Right. And, and how, yeah. yeah, just drunk. I mean, and he was startled. And how, how, how much of... Allegedly. Of a, of a, right. I don't I mean, like you said, this is new... Mm-hmm. So it's like, how much of an a incompetent cop can you be to get your taser taken away by a drunk citizen? Mm-hmm. It's like, you obviously don't have the training, you don't have the, the physical capacity or the skill set to be able to de-escalate or do any type of crisis intervention. It's just, it's just... It's just so like mind blowing and surreal how often this happens, and this is just and just thinking about all the the names that we never hear of in small right. small cities mm-hmm. with, with no video. So it's it's just like incomprehensible to even try to understand the scope of what's going on. It it really is. I mean, we just buried <laughs> George Floyd. Like this week. Yeah. You know, and to see this happen in my city is, it just makes you, it just makes you pause and, and take a deep breath. And you could just looking at the attorneys, they were just like, you know, we're just really tired of this. It's so exhausting. So are you ready for me to... Give your bio. Yes. All right. Excellent. Well, we are speaking with Emiliano Styles. Yes. Emiliano Styles is a multimedia artist and the co-founder of the production company, Soplotation Creative Works, LLC. 
He is a cum laude graduate from Tennessee State University, where he majored in mass communications and theater and minored in English and Africana studies. He holds a master of science and teaching degree from Pace University. A artistic educator, he has worked professionally as an artist and as a high school literacy teacher in Brooklyn, New York. A guerrilla filmmaker, he has made several short films that have been showcased in film festivals and major markets such as Los Angeles, Atlanta, and New York City that have featured Broadway and NAACP Image Award-winning actors. He has filmed and edited over 100 videos in the capacity as a freelance videograph, video, videographer, videographer <laughs> editor, including his editor work featured on VH1, HGTV, History Channel, Disney Plus, Discovery Channel, Bravo, True TV, Essence.com, Double XL Magazine Online, OKPlayer.tv, and Wikia.com. He co produced, edited, directed, and filmed travel web series Worldwide Nate, which developed into a TV show called Worldwide Nate African Adventures, featured on the Africa Channel and Urban Movie Channel to which he filmed and directed in six countries and 12 cities in Africa. Staying aligned with his travel passion, Emiliano directed, filmed, and edited Heritage Journey, a short-form two-part docu-series produced by Soul Society 101 and The Points Guy and profiled by the New York Times. Heritage Journey featured host Rondell Holder's DNA-based travel experience to which he took a DNA test and traveled to the African countries listed in his DNA test results. He has filmed and edited branded content with Nike, LeBron James, and edited several episodes of NBA basketball star Carmelo Anthony's web series, Mellow Mondays. Emiliano Stiles recently completed the women empowerment short film, A Lesson of Beauty and will launch season three of his short film video series featuring melanated stylish women with natural hair entitled Crowns and Style. He is currently working on a slew of television, video, and creative projects slated for a late 2020 and 2021 release. Without further ado, we will continue our conversation with Emiliano Styles. I know it's a, it's a three hour difference. It's 11.30 there and it's it is. 8.30 here. Yes, yes. So without further ado, we will continue our conversation with Emiliano Styles. Uh, before we get to the questions, mm-hmm. I just want to give a little uh, insight because this is still like the the beginning stages in each episode, I want to have it to become better than the next. Yes. Uh, so I want to talk about the, the key art for a threat. And mm-hmm. that's, that's my baby picture. Mm-hmm. And I put the words a threat over the eyes, because if you don't see someone's eyes, it's easier to not see their humanity. Like how it's easier to talk crazy to folks on the phone, text, email, but we look into someone's eyes, it's a different experience because there's a human connection that you can't avoid, you know? 
So I was I was listening to the podcast that I did with Dad, being the artist in the Virgo that I am. Mm-hmm. Like I got listened to it like five times. I was critiquing it, and it's ninety minutes long. And then I was like, "Oh, I'm gonna do it over." <laughs> <laughs> but I did it after work one night, so I was kind of tired and kind of burnt out too. Then because, mm-hmm. and I was listening to it, and I was like, "Man, I, I'm just like in awe, in awe of Dad." Because I was hearing a lot of his stories for the first time as an adult. Yes. And I forgot I was recording a podcast sometimes. I just wanted to listen and, and soak up his wisdom, you know? Yeah, so uh, I feel having you interview me is dope because, I mean, I'm actually kind of nervous. <laughs> <laughs> but I know I'll be more comfortable, you know, with you of some things because, you know, I've been going to therapy for, for well, like the last five years. Mm-hmm. And my therapist and I have been working on some things. And one thing I've been doing is an audit of people mm-hmm. in my life, removing parasites and re- replacing them with like symbiotes, and and being more vulnerable too. And my ex, which you you know the one, mm-hmm. <laughs> she really challenged me to be more vulnerable, not just mm-hmm. in, in in pillow talk and our private moments, but with everyone as well. I know now that. Vulnerability is not a weakness; it's a strength. But as black yeah. men, we're we're socialized. I mean, the way we're socialized, we we got to like a lot of times we have to be guarded and tough all the time to face racism and and such. So I'm going to try to be as transparent and vulnerable as I can because I know it will help me for my own personal growth. And because I know if I'm if I'm vulnerable and I share, someone mm-hmm. else may relate and feel less alone or may be inspired to share. Yes, and I, and I, I agree with that. And I think vulnerability also shows our humanity more, right? Yeah. So I think that's so important. And I think that Black women are socialized, actually, in our society, maybe not in our families, but maybe yes. in people's families would be the same way, like guarded, Mm-hmm. You know, very protective, not wanting to show any weakness. Or if you say something like, oh, I was afraid, it's like, why would you be scared? You know, <laughs> it's kind of like, we need you to be strong right now. It's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> these are um, real emotions. And if you don't think that any of these men and their last moments of life we're not afraid, then you just have no type of humanity within you. Yeah. You know, to be human is to be able to display all of these emotions. So I definitely think that working on vulnerability is definitely a strength, especially in our current times, for sure. Thanks, sis. You're welcome. (laughs) So let's start with the, um, first question and I wanted to ask you if you could share one of your earliest or your most memorable personal experience of dealing with racism or being considered a threat. Aside from everything that dad went through that Mm -hmm. we witnessed firsthand and and taught us directly about, I would say, but the first time that I, the, the the first thing I remember when I was at St. Catherine's mm-hmm. Middle School, and we was at on the playground, and this white 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 kid he called me black boy, mm. and 
even though he he said black boy and not the N word, it was just like the way he said it. Mm-hmm. So I like had to let him have it. Um, <laughs> be, you know, and then, but it it wasn't. I mean, it got broken up, but it was like no teachers saw it. Mm-hmm. But one of my my uh, white friends, Paul, when we returned from recess and we got back into the in the room, mm-hmm. uh, she was like, "It was it was Ms. it was Miss Brown." Mm-hmm. <laughs> she, she was like, "Oh, I was recess." Blah, 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 and my friend Paul, mm-hmm. and my I'm I'm the only you know black kid in the class, and my friend Paul, he's like, "Oh, it was terrible." Mark called, Mark called Jamarin, uh, a black boy and all that. And Ms. Brown was like, he did? Well, what's the big deal? He is a black boy. Mm. So I just thought that me, like trying to, like that was, I'll never forget because I was like trying to navigate that because mm. I was already mad because mm. I had a culture shock because I was coming from Indianola. Right. Which was a public school, very diverse. And I don't even remember where is is that by OSU? Like where is that? I don't even know. Yeah, it is by OSU. It's in the short north area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was going to school over there and then it was like doing like the gifted program stuff. Hey, you wanna do this extra extra work? And oh, this school is not challenging challenging him. Cause I remember them having that they had mom come in, like we had a meeting mm-hmm. with the principals and teachers, those are all he's not he he he's not being challenged here, so we suggest you <laughs> put him in another school. <laughs> we don't have the resources to to challenge him. You finish, you know, all of that. Yeah, so it was that, and I remember just St. Catharines, and one time I got picked up by Dad, and we went to the library, and I was just like kind of waiting outside. Why was I outside? Why was I waiting for? I forget, but I remember I was outside this library and this white guy, he was probably in his 20s or whatever, and he, mm-hmm. like, walked around me, like, made, like, an obvious, obvious, like, circle, like, 180 to, to get around me, to not have to walk close by me. Like, he was scared. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, just going to, like, Rite Aid and stuff and Mm-hmm. I'll be in there with mom or something, and you know how mom shops. She'll go over there, and I'll just be kind of like perusing the aisles, and you know, getting followed around by the workers there. I remember I got you know nigger rolling on my locker at, at, at Bishop Hartley, mm. and um, I, the principal he reached out to me. He was like, "Yo, I was seeing if you were you were okay. Sorry that that happened to you." And this is a you know it's a Catholic school, which right. was, which supposed to be of God yeah and all that so those are some of like my earliest experiences dealing with racism and being considered a threat yeah I th- I think it's interesting for um people to hear about how because we there's been so much focus on black men Mm-hmm. But it's like not really taking in consideration like who were these men when they were children and yeah. what experiences did they have 
or when we look at some of the children that we know their names, like a Tamir Rice or a Trayvon Martin, um, it's like, okay, these were kids, yeah, right? These men also were children at one point and what experiences shaped their lives, mm-hmm. you know? And now we see what is going to happen to these men and women, right? What are going to happen to their children? Right. Now they have to be raised without them. So um, I don't think sometimes that people understand how detrimental other children can be to other children and how that needs to be um, addressed. Mm-hmm. And also how adults, how they also uh, view other children, how they view children, right? And how yeah. that makes you feel. So it's it's very it's very complex, and you you know I remember you know with my oldest son Ari, he was doing some play night at school, and of course because he knows his mother, he did not tell me until we were almost home mm-hmm. that some little white girls in the playground at Chick Fil A said no black people allowed, what? and I. You know, it was about like all about to turn the car around, and then I said, asked him, "Well, what did you say?" And he said, "I just laughed in her face because that's stupid." <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not gonna listen to her. He's in kindergarten, right? Yeah, yeah. And I was so mad. Like I text his teacher. I was just not having it. The principal called me the next day. Like it was like, where is the little girl? We got to talk to the parents. I mean, it was just like this whole situation. I remember. Well, the, it was this in Memphis, or was it? In no, a- this was in because he was in kindergarten. This oh, was. Oh, that's right. Yeah, okay. this was in you know Fayetteville, and you know the. Uh, <laughs> principal being like, I'ma handle it, you know. And and I and I did feel is the principal who went to TSU? Yes, TSU. Uh, Shout yeah. out to that principal. Yeah, he was amazing. He um really, you know, handled it in a very professional, non no nonsense way. Like we're not gonna tolerate this. You know, he made sure he was going to contact the parents of the little girl. But still, I was heartbroken because I knew that my sons are going to experience racism, but I had no idea that they would experience it so young. Yeah. And so that made me upset because I was, you know, just thinking, gosh, you know, as a mom, you just want to protect your children. And I definitely did not want them to experience something like that at such a young age. But I was really shocked by how Ari, you know, handled that. Like, well, that was dumb, you know? What a stupid thing to say. And why would I listen to you, little girl? You know, um, I, I just thought that was a very mature response coming from a kindergartner. And this uh, girl, she was older than him. Mm. So it wasn't even somebody his own age and he um, didn't care. He just felt, felt that it was so ridiculous. But I do feel like yeah. there needs to be more attention about how this affects 
children. And then these children grow up to become men and women, black men and women. And shout out to Ari, (laughs) my nephew, because it is ridiculous. It is laughable to, well, if you really think about the whole concept of of race and judging people off their culture and and skin complexion. And like, it it really is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Like I'm Mm -hmm. not, I'm going to treat you this way because of your skin basically. So if you really look at it with a, like a fresh lens of how he's like being socialized, he's a hundred percent correct. It is ridiculous. Mm Mm-hmm. I just think that this is a great moment for people to really analyze adults too, you know, adults. How do you treat black children? Yeah. And a lot of times black children are mistaken for being older than what they really are. That is so true. My, uh, my, my homie, uh, Terry, who did the, the photography for a lesson of beauty. Mm-hmm. She did some, portrait series and she was her nephew for one mm-hmm. and that was one of the things she said because I, I saw her nephew in person he's, he's little mm-hmm. but then you know like the way that you know he was photographed it's just interesting how people will perceive perceive him like I mean Tamir right you know Trayvon like mm-hmm. Trayvon was a teenager right but I felt as if when that case was being tried I felt as if he was being tried like he was an adult. It, it was just interesting because I always looked at Trayvon as a, as a child, as a teenager. But people who are not of the culture or the community, I think that they looked at Trayvon as a threat and looked at him as a man. Yeah, and I also think, I mean, you know... <laughs> the saying is like black don't crack or whatever. And so I do feel that I'm not trying to de- defend people mm-hmm. who are not of our culture, but I think there's a, a little, the gauge is a little bit off with gauging how old we are though too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that is also, I mean, not that it even matters how old that we are because you should treat anyone with, everyone with respect and with dignity and, and whatever. It also really bothers me that when kids who are not black, like do pranks or they do things that are, you know, just as people would say, kids being kids, that's how they're treated. Mm. And with our kids, it's looked at as like a crime, you know, like they don't get that same pass of, oh, they're just being kids you know, um, they just have just detriment. It's just detrimental effects um, on their life. You know, something that might just be a prank or them having fun or not really realizing the consequences that they really can't have that because it'll cost them their life. You know. So, yeah. 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 I'm sorry. And before you get to the next question, uh, I did talk about a little bit in the trailer for the podcast. But yeah, that was one of the main inspirations to do this podcast was seeing the closing arguments of the Trayvon Martin case when the defense attorney, he brought in the slab of concrete like, oh, no, he wasn't an unarmed teenager. He was walking on concrete. He was walking on the sidewalk. So he used that as a weapon. So 
he's basically saying that no black male could ever be unarmed. Right. And that's deep. Man, that's that just... <laughs> that's deep, that's deep, that's deep. Yeah, that crushed me, man. The second question I have is, how does be, being considered a threat, how does that impact your personal perspective and day-to-day life? Man, it's, it's so complex. But I would say the number one thing is mm-hmm. awareness. Like, I'm super aware and observant. Living in New York during the stop and frisk era, mm. I was I was stopped and frisked like over 20 times. Like I just, I really stopped counting. It, wow. just, it just became like, not normal, but I just, I don't know. I feel like I'm not the best with <laughs> analogies, but mm-hmm. I know when people have exhibited like some type of trauma or something and they, they you know, they try to find a coping me- mechanism to like kind of like bury it to like have an out of body experience. Like mm-hmm. I'm going through this, but I have to separate my consciousness from my physical being for a moment mm-hmm. to be able to get through it. And mm-hmm. me, I'm a pretty, pretty even kill laid back guy. Mm-hmm. So I know that I, I understand when I see the anger of of black people because we've we've all been going through these acts of racism mm-hmm. and they're not as everyone's not as chill as me mm-hmm. so i can imagine someone else is not as chill as me they can have a bad day mm-hmm. and they're tired from work they may have been late and you don't know what anyone's done through mm-hmm. and they say they've been stopped every day that week by the mm-hmm. cops for no reason, just for walking down the street. Mm-hmm. And then it's just, it's just having a bad day and they just they just talk back that day. Like, you know what, what did I do? Why, why are you pulling me over? It's like they're, they've lost their patience. Right. right. And I feel like police, they are supposed to be the professionals. They're supposed to be the people who are trained to deal with crisis intervention and all that. Mm-hmm. And with the first time I was The first time I was stopped in Frisk, because I was aware of that being implemented and being handcuffed, mm. being Frisk, and like, you know, I was teaching at the time. I was like, just getting off the bus, trying to walk home. Wow. The car, like, drove up on the sidewalk, stopped in Frisk me. You have anything sharp in your pockets? Where you coming from? Where you going? I was like, yo, I'm a teacher, you know, you know, you know all these things. And then you see people walking by. Mm-hmm. And when people walking by, and they and I, I catch eyes with them, and they just looking at me like, mm-mm-mm. Mm. "What did he do? Look at this thug!" You know, they looking at me, and I'm like, "Yo, I really didn't do anything. anything. I'm literally just trying to walk down the street." And it was kind of being like, I know it was can't even compare, but I was like, "Wow, like this." They did something similar in apartheid Africa. You had to have your papers. You had to have curfew. Stop. Oh, show me your papers. It was like, oh, we got anything in your pockets. Oh, we got any weapons. And I remember I was in LA. Well, I was, yeah, I was here when, you know, Philando Castillo and all that. And we was in the office in my, uh, the post supervisor at the time on the show I was working on, he he was like, they was like talking about it and it was like, well, oh, I think it was like Sandra Bland. 
Mm-hmm. So Sandra Bland had happened, and a post supervisor he said, "You know what? I've been pulled over by the police, and just have to say no, yes sir, no sir. <laughs> Show them your papers. Do this, that, and the third, and then the right to your ticket. It sucks, but you just have to go on." Which is, and I was like, "I mean, that sounds well and good." Mm-hmm. I was like, but. I told him how many times I was stopped and frisked and how I didn't do anything. He was like, and they were, he was like shocked that one of his coworkers like was going through all this, but I never talk about it. I mean, right. place of work, but it's like, you really don't understand the scope of which we are like socialized and how that makes you feel and how you have to come up with kind of coping mechanisms to like deal with it. And I think this, uh, one of the, the, I'll just tell you two more times when I was stopping Fresh is other time I was, I was doing a shoot and I, my, my film shoot, it was over. It had to be after midnight. So I had like my lights, my camera, my tripod, all of that. And I got into a gypsy cab. No, no, I got into like a black car. This is before Uber and Lyft. So I called a car service. I'm in the car, tired. We in Brooklyn, we're going down the street and I see the police sirens, the, mm-hmm. the flashing lights. They pulled the car over, and I'm like, ah, I want to go home. What did this cabbie do? Did he run a stop line? Does he have, a, like, what? So the police, they come to the back seat and, and shine the flashlight at me. Mm. Had me get out, said, hey, where are you going? You have anything sharp in your pockets? I'm like, um, what are you stopping me for? Oh, we had a... Uh, there's a series of burglaries. You notice how a lot of times when they stop people from the reason, they always claim that there's mm-hmm. a series of, bur- there's always burglaries. Right, exactly. <laughs> Especially in houses New York. Are, houses are robbed all over the place. Mm-hmm. There's always people stealing stuff. Mm-hmm. But they, that's one of the, anyways. So get out the car and uh, go to the back. And then it was like, you have something in the trunk? I was like, yes. It's like, what? I was like, um, like I said before, I'm coming from a shoot. I have lights. I have my camera. I have my tripod. I have my microphones. So we're looking in the trunk, and, like, I have these little bulbs, and they're in, like, these packages in there. I was trying to hard to explain, but they're, like, rectangular, and they contain each individual bulb. And then they were, like, they're pretty fragile. Like, you're not supposed to touch the, I uh, can't think of, what's the name of the... Like the filter? Yeah, you're not supposed to touch that part because you could break it. Right. But they're, like, being all rough with my equipment. I'm like, okay, that's, like, $25 a ball. And I'm like, yo, the, I'm like, yeah, those are all my lights. And then I, like, kind of, like, point it. And it was like, hey, hey, back up. Don't, what are you reaching for? You know, like, mm-hmm. trying to provoke me. And I was like, all right. So they looked through whatever they had to look through and blah, 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 blah. And I go about my way. And, um, and just some, you know, and, and I think like if I wasn't as even killed as I was, that could have just been a whole different situation. And then the third time was I was leaving a part, like a rooftop party. I was actually with Leslie. Mm-hmm. Uh, shout out to Les and we was leaving this party in Harlem and we were just w- walking down the street and this, you know, big big paddy wagon pulls up, three cops hop out, and they just 
surround me and it was like, oh, it was a robbery. You 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 fit the description. And then they like frisking me, and then Leslie is like not having it. She's oh, like, she was like, well, what? She was like, what are you doing? It's like, oh, it was like, oh, somebody fit, fit the description. She was like, what was the description? It was like, oh, he had on jeans and a gray shirt. I had on like my had on jeans and my Tennessee State gray shirt with the blue <laughs> lettering. And she was like, oh, I was like, then then uh, they like kind of like got into it. You know, shout out to black women. Y'all always be. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all always be holding us down and, and, and speaking up for us and, and, and supporting us. But yeah, yeah, uh, the homie Les, she like was having a fit. But I was like, nah, I was like, it's okay, but it's not okay. It is not okay. You know what I'm saying? But we were in that type of situation in New York where that was completely legal to do the stop and frisk thing. So it's, it's, not, it's, it's like, who can I complain to where there's a right. citywide well, ordinance that is permitting this? And I felt like Mayor Bloomberg, he, and I felt like when he was running that he was not really fully comprehending how much trauma that he inflicted on black males. Mm-mm. Right. And I felt like the country was not either, right? And I remember Reverend Sharpton, Al Sharpton was like, you're talking like years and years of tyranny against Black people. Yeah. You know, he was like, this is very serious. And I just felt like there was such a disconnect about that. And I remember, you know, when I was living in New York, just even trying to meet you places. If you tried to get a cab, it would take you longer, you know. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, it was not, yo, Uber yeah. and Liv, shout out because, man, I could not, I had to trick people to get to get a cab. Mm-hmm. Like, I would be on the street, like, somewhere, and it would uh, be, like, a white couple. Mm-hmm. And I would be like, hey, can y'all, can y'all get a cab? I like, can y'all call a cab for me? And then they was like, are you serious? Like, you really can't? I was like, yeah, can you? So I would, I was like, watch. So I'll put out my hand. I'm like trying to hail a cab. Mm-hmm. They would go right by me to the couple. So they mm-hmm. would open up the door and then I would get in. <laughs> <laughs> and I would like, hey, thanks. You know what I'm saying? So shout out to the, to the allies. Right. Or, and then sometimes they just wouldn't. You know, they you just it was just like a whole thing. I had a had the whole had this whole scheme like, oh, they, they were like, oh, have their their doors locked, and I'd be like, hey, uh, what, your doors locked, <laughs> <laughs> and they was like, oh yeah, where you going? I'm like, well, where you going? They were like, I'm going, I'm going uptown. I was like, okay, I'm going uptown too, and I'll get it, get into the car. I'm like, yeah, so I'm going to Brooklyn. You want to go get on the West Side Highway? You gonna go on the Williamsburg Bridge? You know what I'm saying? Cause mm-hmm. you can't kick you out once you're. <laughs> in the cab. Yeah, when you yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I remember at times I was shocked that there were places that the cabs did not want to go. And Brooklyn mm-hmm. was one of those places. Which is illegal. Yeah, yeah. that's totally illegal. <laughs> and then so it's like, I don't feel sorry for any of them that they're like, oh, Uber and Lyft. It's like, what about all those times that you discriminated against black people? Oh yeah, fuck them. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Seriously. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, but uh, I don't feel bad for any of 
the taxi cab drivers, taxi companies for losing business to Uber and Lyft. Right. Uh, very racist. And it was mm-hmm. very like a, a known thing that it was hard for black folks to get a taxi cab in New York. Is it, it was a real thing and it went on for years. So shout out for to Lyft and Uber for disrupting that whole situation. Like I, yeah. I, I was I was ecstatic when Uber and Lyft was created because it was just a whole and I mean that's a whole nother thing is just having to navigate something like transportation where other people don't even have to think about that. Right. Right. And that that goes into your livelihood, right? Because it's a lot of these experiences that you were saying, it was like most of them were you coming from work. Yeah. So I mean it's just like these are things that people who are not black, they can't even wrap their brains around. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why you know, with the questions like my perspective, that's what it is. Awareness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what uh, W.E.B. Du Bois was talking about, like the double consciousness. You know, yeah. It's definitely a real thing and the whole code switching mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And um, my homie Rondell, he said something on the podcast. He mm-hmm. was talking about how there's just like so much disregard for black men. And he's just like, you know, a bigger guy than me. Mm-hmm. And he would say, like, you know, how he felt that when he would walk around, he would feel like he had to shrink himself just to not intimidate other people. Because, mm. You know, but then mm-hmm. as time went on, he was like, man, I'm over that, man. I'm not shrinking myself anymore. No. I'm going no. to be who I'm going to be. And y'all going to have to, whatever y'all dealing with, that's between you and your self-esteem. It has nothing to do with me. That's right. Yeah. That's completely right. Because it's like, why should we own the responsibility of making you feel comfortable? Yeah, it's whack. It is totally whack and unacceptable. Uh, I, I just think that that what people really need to understand is that the, I think this second question is just so important because it's your day-to-day life, you know, like how it is to be a black person, a black male, you know, in this world on a daily, like there's not a day (laughs) that goes by that these things don't happen. Yeah. You know, it's so important, but uh, talking about, um, you know, dealing with trauma, what about what are some of the like male figures and role models and mentors that empowered you to cope with this trauma of with racism and being considered a threat to society and to white America? Well, I'll say one of my uh, first role models that I really looked up to uh, really means a lot to me. I love him. His name is uh, Kanye West. And uh, I really appreciate everything. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> no, so of course, dad, I, you know, dad, my dad is, dad is um, my, my first role model because, you know, even when I was younger, I, I, I even wanted my name to be James. 
Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, and I just like write my write you know James on my papers, and the teacher was like, "Oh, did he did he get his, cha- his name changed?" So I just like <laughs> looked up to him so much that I wanted to have the same name, mm-hmm. and just seeing him with his police uniform walking in, he just felt like like a superhero or or a mm-hmm. giant, you know, like coming to a class or whatever, whatever. So. Mm-hmm. So he was he was definitely my role model, very strong, like very much, uh, you know, provider for, for us and very a protector of us. He always mm-hmm. stood up for himself, like, and me, like, I feel like I'm a pretty, like, 50-50 mix with dad and mom mm-hmm. in the terms of, like, I don't really like confrontation, but... And I have a lot of patience, but mm-hmm. if I turn up, like I, I I turn up, and I'm I'm pretty stubborn about it, mm-hmm. uh, much like that. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, so I, I I definitely learned about from that about being outspoken, but most of my outspokenness has come in the form of my artistic expression, whether it's like the music or the poetry where I could just like really kind of go in. And then then it went to, when I was growing up, you know, getting older, then it was more of my, our brother, Marquay, like I was looking up to him. Mm -hmm. And because, yeah, I mean, he was five years older. So it was like hanging around him and his friends and stuff. Like I just had to, kind of up my game as far as like <laughs> maturity. Like he didn't want to take me to places, but mom and dad always make, make him take me with him. I mean, yeah. So yeah. So just that, that kind of like toughened me up, you know, playing with them and, you know, fighting with them and <laughs> Deron and all them. Ron, there's just like a whole, since dad was like so strict, Marquette was like more of a kind of like a, he was kind of like a father figure, but like a cool, or maybe yeah, it's like kind of like a, a, a father figure just because dad was always so strict. And, <laughs> and then, so it was like someone that I could get the, oh, how do you talk to girls or, you know, and how do you deal with this and, and that. So, but then, you know, then it was like, then it was back to dad being a role model as I got even older and less of my brother, our brother. Yeah, so even when, when I'm talking to him like now that I'm grown, like he, a lot of times he just lead by example and just to see him interact with uh, other people, the community, he was doing his radio shows. I remember he was always on the news and I remember just like walking through sometimes some pretty rough neighborhoods or being where I wasn't supposed to be and where we get back to dad that I was over there. <laughs> or, you know, me and Marquette was over there. Mm-hmm. Because I look just like that. So it's like, you can't <laughs> mistake me. So you can't mistake, you know, me or whatever. So um, having that accountability in like the village in the community that we were in mm-hmm. uh, and, and just seeing how well dad was respected and seeing that 
I, I just kind of, I understand to some degree, like with his activism and his uh, crusades and his pursuits and just like him making sure that we were good and working really hard, several jobs and all that. It was, it was just like, I understood and I kind of like, he was just like a, like a man of the other people because it's sometimes I'll be, I'll get kind of jealous <laughs> because it's like so many other people in the community were depending on dad to, to be what he was to us, to them, to the community, you know? No, I completely felt the same way. <laughs> I would yeah. be like, get your own, get your own James Moss. Yeah. You know, it's like, no, I need him here. We need him here with us. And, um, yeah, because yeah, I had to share him. <laughs> right. And then a lot of the things, I mean, uh, the, like he was empowering me just by leading by example. So it wasn't even, situations where he had to explicitly say, hey, hey, Neil, do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. He would just be doing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was like, okay, I, I, like I said before, earlier, it's like I'm, I'm observant and my awareness, uh, pretty introverted. So I'll be like peeping Keeping what what he would be doing, how he would, he would interact with people, the respect he would show people when he's disrespected, how he would respond. So he was just being that walking, talking, and shining example of what a strong black man is and should be. So yeah, yeah. Shout out to Dad. We For love real. you. <laughs> For real. Um, so what's the best advice that you've received from a black man? I'd say the best advice uh, would be from dad, of course. <laughs> it's a story I don't really share often, but the whole vulnerability thing. Okay. So a lot of people don't know this, not that I'm famous or anything, but in my circle, I've been in Los Angeles for, this is my sixth year here, but it took me it took me a minute to end up here. So my mm -hmm. first time I went to LA, cause I always considered me working in entertainment and being in New York, that LA was the logical next step. I always had that in the back of my mind, even though I had no desire ever to go to LA, I was always about New York. Mm -hmm. I love New York even still. I love New York like a abusive spouse, but <laughs> so the first time I went to LA I was there for a week I was staying with, staying with my homie Allen mm -hmm. and I rented a car and I just wanted to see the sights I went to Santa Monica Venice Beach I'm just like rolling around and I'm driving mm -hmm. this guy pulls up next to me he's like hey man you want to smoke some weed and I was like oh okay this is California and I was like <laughs> Nah, man, I'm good. I wasn't into that at the time. So mm -hmm. and I was in, in L.A. for a week, and I was like, eh, I don't know. I don't know about this L.A. place. So came back again for Nate's uh, 30th, and that's mm -hmm. when I shot Dragon Fruit. So I was back in. I was out here to shoot the film and to uh, celebrate Nate. And I was here for, yeah, I was here for like two weeks. Mm -hmm. And then I saw like more of his crowd and, and I was like, oh, okay, I could kind of see myself 
being in LA now, I was like, okay, I kind of get it. Now that I see this crowd, I see like this group called the Brown Party and these different type of TSU folks. I was like, okay, I kind of get it. Mm-hmm. Then uh, Hurricane Sandy hit, and I was like, maybe this is a sign <laughs> that I should definitely move to LA because that was just so catastrophic. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine like Hurricane Katrina. But anyways, so I was in LA and I got offered some jobs, but it was like part-time, nothing really substantial. And I was like, you know, I have, I I had, I couldn't, I couldn't stay in LA. Like the Mm -hmm. money wasn't right, the opportunities weren't right. So went back to Atlanta and, and I was just like kind of bummed out because I just felt like I failed. I was like, man, I had this career trajectory trajectory in mind and I'm just trying to do these things. And and dad, he took me into the room, uh, the computer room, and he was like, you know, me and your Uncle Bill, we had some failed ventures before and this, that, and the third. And he he told me this advice. Mm -hmm. He said, pay yourself first. Mm -hmm. And he was like, so when I say pay yourself first, he said, that means whatever is going on, you have to make sure that you're good. So if a bill has to be late, even though you don't want to mess up your credit or anything, but you have to make sure that you're good. So pay yourself first. And then once you're good, then that's when you can handle other responsibilities. But you really, he was like, you know, pay yourself first. I mean, it sounds like this, this sounds very simple, but I never forgot that advice. Mm-hmm. And it kind of like shook the cobwebs off of me. And thankfully I had, you know, uh, you know, family to, you know, help me out. And, and I went back to New York, worked on some more TV shows, got regained my focus, bossed up. Then I came back to LA and I've been here for six years. So I don't know even where I would be without that little advice right there. Like, you know? I think that's so important. Yeah, so for him to, you know, to say that and to like, I just thought that was really, really excellent advice. Mm -hmm. And even to this day, like I, I think of that and yeah, but anyways, but that was like the best advice that, uh, think I've ever received uh, and that was from uh, from uh, dad and another one that I actually just thought of is I had this homie his name is uh, Jay Mallory mm-hmm. and uh, he told me once he said hey yo don't live in fear mm. it's like stop living in fear I was in oh I didn't want to tell well I, let me tell the, the Mexico story <laughs> <laughs> so uh which yeah so basically it was, I went to this wedding and my my girlfriend at the time uh she was not black she's Asian and we we were at the wedding party and then she just like had too much to drink. 
Mm-hmm. And we weren't staying at the hotel at the resort where the, the wedding was. So mm-hmm. I, we were staying somewhere else that we had a, a timeshare. Anyways, she had too much to drink and she's like the scarecrow from The Wiz when he first got down. <laughs> <laughs> you can't win. <laughs> right, so she had like the rubber legs and I'm trying to walk down. This is like, I don't know, 30 steps. And she's, I'm like having a, bo- a bottle of water. I'm trying to give her water. She's like spitting it out. I'm like, whatever. It was just a whole scene. Mm-hmm. So, um, some some white guys walked up and I was like, hey, do you know her? <laughs> and I was like, oh. I was like, yeah, I know her. I was like, we came here together, whatever. And then I like stopped myself and I was like, hold up. Why am I why, why am I explaining myself to y'all? And then I so I so I was like, I was like, yeah, we good. I was like, we good. Mm-hmm. And then she's like incapacitated, she could barely talk. And uh they were like, Hey, are you okay, ma'am? Ma'am, are you okay? So I was like, what is this black dude with this doing with this Asian women? And we're both like dressed up, you know, anyways. So they call security. Security comes and they're like, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing with her? Hey, uh, ma'am, are you okay? Do you know this person? And it was just like, hey, and they were just like kind of mobilizing, like kind of like surrounding me just in case I tried to run. Like I was seeing them like kind of surrounding me. And it just so Mm -hmm. happened that some other people from the wedding party was like, oh, hey, hey, it's okay. Let's just have, y'all can stay tonight. We have a spare room and blah, 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 blah. But I knew, like, when you don't stay on a resort, you're not supposed to, uh, you, probably, you, you you could pay for it, like, get a day pass, <laughs> and you're not supposed to stay overnight. You're supposed to come for the event and leave, but she was, mm-hmm. so anyways, we uh, we were there or whatever, and we, had, we stayed the night, and then the whole time, like, I have this conscious, and I have, like, this integrity, and I'm like, uh, we need to leave because we didn't pay for another day, you mm-hmm. know. But but she was still like trying to get her sobered up and everything. Mm-hmm. So the people at the at the wedding it was like, "Man, you you already here? Let's have breakfast, yo. Let's do that." And I'm like, can't really enjoy myself because I'm thinking, hmm, is someone going to pull me by the collar? Like, hey, sir, where's your your wristband or whatever or you know something like that. And that's when I was just like, then that's when Jay, my homie Jay was like, yo, don't live in fear, man. You got this beautiful woman with you and we're having a good time. You're with your friends. Don't live in fear. And I know he was just talking about don't live in fear as it applied to that situation I was in being, I guess, Mm kind of like a stowaway. But I really Mm -hmm. thought about that and how it was applicable to other aspects of my life, for sure. Well, that is a lot of great advice about making sure you pay yourself first and not live in fear, to live a fearless life. 
Yeah. That takes a lot of strength, especially in this world. That is for sure. So can you give a specific example of how you are actively helping and empowering other black men and or black boys to combat racism? I just be trying to be an example like like dad was an example for us. For for example, um when we were growing up, mm-hmm. we had a black dentist. Yeah. <laughs> black doctor. <laughs> black electrician. Black plumbers. Black mechanic. Went to black restaurants. Black funeral homes. Black church. So <laughs> it was always instilled within us to, you know, he had that, that black nationalism mindset mm-hmm. and whenever I mean of course it's not going to be a a black business for everything but whenever he could he would actively seek those people out and I feel like that I do the, do the same thing mm-hmm. I do want to support us yeah. uh, uh, black businesses especially I don't know it's just, it's just very it's just very important for yeah. us to be able to support each other. And I think it's important for like people in a community support that community, regardless Mm -hmm. of your ethnicity, you should be supporting your community and you should be an active participant in your culture. So even when, like when I was hiring crews, when we were doing production work, I had a black hired a black sound a boom operator black cameraman trying to get the black producer you know mm-hmm. so I was always trying to especially when the subject matter is of that culture yeah um, so anytime I was tasked with hiring a crew or whatever it was important for me to have majority uh, you know black folks doing it mm-hmm. and even when we went to when I was working on, you know, the the Worldwide Day African Adventures, mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, I it was I wanted because I wasn't able to shoot two of the episodes. I only I shot eleven out of thirteen, so it was two episodes in Kenya that I didn't get to do. Mm-hmm. And the person who who shot those, he was white, so I was like, it would be great if we had a a black director for those episodes mm-hmm. because not that he wasn't capable, but I just feel like it's just a whole different perspective mm-hmm. that we are able to give because we're going to our motherland. It's just like if I'm, if I'm doing a shooting something in, in the Philippines and I'm Filipino, I've never been there before it's going to be a different experience for me because that's like my homeland. Or if you're from, you know, where, you know, wherever you're from, it's going to be a, it's a different feeling. It's a different, it's a deep, it's, it's not just entertainment. It's a, it's a different perspective of care and respect mm-hmm. and connection for a culture that you derive from. Yeah. So I feel like, Whenever I can, I do try to empower other 
other black men and try to be for others of what, you know, opportunities that I was given. Like my first opportunity to work on a TV show was from a black man who paid it forward, who was always working for the company. And he, and they took a chance on me. And that was my first ever TV gig that was mm -hmm. basically an alley-oop from my homeboy, Lavaro. So I feel like that, those are the ways where I actively empower uh, other black men and black boys to combat racism because if we are being empowered to tell our own stories and to crew up, mm -hmm. then that's com combating racism because we're able to deliver, we're, we're able to give people credits and experience so they can uh, do other projects what they wouldn't otherwise have. That's right. So I, I just think that's very, very important um, to combat racism and, and to tear down, tear it down because we, if we don't empower each other or give each other opportunities and put each other on, then we won't be able to cultivate our skill sets and be able to just like do whatever. And uh, I feel like there's a certain place where we can all, you know, do, you know, kind of dibble and dabble in e each other's culture. Because some people's storytelling skills like surpass culture or race, or whatever. I mean, I understand that, but you know, living in this society, I, I just, yeah, I, I think those. That's the way I do it. Is through my art, and when I'm able to have a position of a power, or if I hear of a job, I'm I'm always trying to, uh, you know, bring other people with me. Mm -hmm. trying to pay it forward. Which is great because that helps battle institutionalized racism. Yes. And it also empowers other black people when you're able to do that. So those are great examples. Which leads me to the next question, which is what are some solutions or ideas that you have to offer to change people's mindset toward black men? I would say some solutions and ideas to change people's mindset toward black men is, hmm, I feel you just have to, have to face, you have to face racism and you have to tell the truth. I just feel like, do, do I fear losing my job or do I, do I fear being a coward more? You wanna, you know, you know, you know they say cowards die a thousand times. But I feel like a solution is to educate yourself and don't and don't be too emotional, but learn facts. So the more that you are informed and the more that you read and the more that you experience, you'll be able to to make educated or informed uh, responses to what people are talking about. And actually, well, I, I kind of got the light bulb for this was sixth grade at St. Catherine, I think it was like Mrs. Knapp. <laughs> she said something like, yeah, that's why your grades are mediocre now. She said something like that. And I was like, okay. Context clues is telling me that mediocre <laughs> isn't a good thing. <laughs> but I don't know the exact definition 
for mediocre. Mm-hmm. And that really bothered me because I knew I'm I knew I was bright, but I just mm-hmm. this is my first time hearing that word. I'm sixth grade, whatever. Right. And then I was talking to mom about what happened, mm-hmm. and I thought that she was gonna get riled up, like, what what she say? Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh. But she was like, Oh, you gotta educate mediocre means average like you can do better and da 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 and da, I was like oh okay that made me get more focused and be more aware of the the double consciousness that I would learn about later is that I had to educate myself on a, a lot of different things that wasn't taught in school so from from that I mean I hated it then but when he was having me read like a book a week and reading Garvey and and, and you know, the classics and, and, and Booker T and giving us tests at home. Like, I was hating it at, at, at that moment. He's like, you, you could play Tecmo Bowl for hours or you could play the Nintendo for hours. You could, you could read this book for hours or whatever. <laughs> so when I was doing all that, and then I, like, I, pre- I hated it then, but I appreciated it because I, I was very much more informed. So when they were bring up, especially issues that concern race and racism and slavery. Like I remember schooling them on chattel slavery in, in middle school. And, and, and then when I was at Bishop Hartley, when they had the black history things, they were like, oh, uh, here's a list of all the black people that you can do research projects on. It was a research project on, of course, Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, <laughs> W.E.B. Du Bois. Of course, it's not, these are very outstanding individuals, but right. I happen to choose Nat Turner. Yes. <laughs> and and actually not to, you know, kind of too long hard a little bit, of, but in Mr. Mayo's, rest in peace, I got the highest grade in, in the class. Like, it wow. was, I think it was worth... Um, 50 points? No, it's worth 40 points and I got 50. Wow. Because, because yo, like, oh. I, I thought I was, uh, I thought I was Ken Burns or somebody. I, I, <laughs> I went to the library. I got the, like, the Negro spiritual CDs. Mm-hmm. Got books, so I was, like, recording the, the pages of the books and I was narrating it. Like, Nat Turner was a preacher. And, like, I, I did, like, the whole... <laughs> Thing. Like I did, you know, so I, I felt like a lot of the people in that class, I mean, of course, the school is predominantly white, but, but they right. wouldn't know about the story of Nat Turner mm-hmm. until, what's his name, did the movie several years later. <laughs> <Right>. Exactly. <laughs> but it, it, it was just like stuff like that. And, and then, you know, just even that story when they, we're having lynchings and stuff like that. And they made wallets and purses out of his skin. So it's, I would say my solution idea is to offer the people is to change people's mindset toward a black man. I don't know if you could really change people's mindset, but you just have to, you know, be yourself and you have to be informed. I think that's so important. Cause I know when the protests first started in Atlanta, um, one of the local civil rights leaders was like, 
these young people have, they don't know the history. They don't know who John Lewis is. They don't know who this person is. And all I could think about was, well, whose fault is that? And I think it's very easy to blame a young person mm-hmm. for being uninformed, but I feel like that's also a community's responsibility, a family's responsibility. Like dad and mom understood that we probably were not <laughs> to learn about certain truths about American history mm-hmm. at school. They knew where they sent us, right? So therefore, but I think it wouldn't have mattered what school they sent us to. I still think there were certain things that we probably would not have learned. And so instead of complaining about that, it's like, well, we'll just teach our children at home. Yeah, and, and I think of uh, the, the James Baldwin quote, he said, children have never been very good at listening to their elders, but they never, what is it? But they have never failed to imitate them. Something like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so, I mean, James Baldwin, he is just, so on point. and he, you know, he just really understands humanity and, um, you know, when I see all these fires, I, I, you know, I always just say, well, he said the fire next time. Yeah. He did. And he was, he, it was like, he, was in the Bible that say, uh, it was water first, but it's gonna be the fire next time. It's gonna be the fire next time. And the quote from James Baldwin is very similar to what you said. It said, um, "Children have never been very good at listening to their elders, but they have never failed to imitate them." Yeah. So it's, it's hard for these generations to talk smack about kids because you're the generation you're supposed to be leading them. You're supposed to, you know, right. they didn't just get there by themselves. So it's, exactly. you, have you have to have, to have that responsibility to too. Yeah. That's right. You have to have the responsibility too. So talking about James Baldwin, um, the last question is based on one of my favorite quotes from him, which is to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage almost all the time. So dealing with racism can be quite exhausting and disheartening. What are some of your coping mechanisms? Some of my coping mechanisms, therapy. have mm-hmm. a really great therapist. Therapy is like, it's hard because it's challenging because the only way you can get through Therapy is like a guide. It's like, I feel like she's like a guide and like guiding through and navigating me through my emotions and really questioning, getting to the root of, of who I am because we're all the sum of our experiences. Mm-hmm. So, and it's not always easy to face some of these truths or, mm-hmm. or the darkness or the, you know, the different things that I feel and, you know, the light. So it's, it's interesting, um, but it, it is very, very helpful. I feel like I'm, I've grown a lot mm-hmm. through therapy. Mm-hmm. Again, it was you know one of my exes. She was a therapist, and she was always challenging me to because she saw saw more in, in, in me and wanted to to other people to see that as well. Mm-hmm. But anyways, therapy 
therapy is is the way that I that I'm able to uh, to cope. It's not always easy, but it's always helpful. Self medicating, I do self medicate. <laughs> oh, <Lord. laughs> I do self medicate. I drink, and sometimes I just need. Sometimes you just like like Frank Ocean said. He, he said sometimes you just need that that cheap vacation. <laughs> I just say like in general, just like like pleasure seeking. Like when when you see so much trauma, or you're just trying to get your mind. It just I, I I do understand addicts. Mm-hmm. Because especially when when I was watching like the Black Panther Vanguard for the Revolution doc. Mm-hmm. And just my knowledge of the, the Black Panthers and and all these uh, militant groups and Black empowerment groups, mm-hmm. and some of them, you know, were self-medicating and then really got addicted and stuff. So, or even musicians or just these people, because they were dealing with racism too. So mm-hmm. I understand, like they were all just trying to chase this feeling to have this form of escapism. And 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 sometimes it would just engulf them. Mm -hmm. Um, So I understand. I didn't like go off the deep end as far as I becoming an addict. Have to go to to uh, what you call it uh, rehab or anything like that or overdose. But Mm -hmm. um, I do understand that they're trying to chase this feeling. Or to, just to feel better, it went, you know, pleasure seekers. And I also, I like creating really, really helps, helps me. Um, inspiration to me, when I get an idea, it pretty much haunts me. Mm-hmm. Like I, I get this feeling in my stomach and I, I just can't let it go until I get an idea. <laughs> Out. So I definitely lose sleep and I really like have to release it. I have to write it out. I have to get the pictures. I have to like, because it, it literally haunts me and I can't, I, I'll, I'll be up I'll, all night trying mm-hmm. to finish a script or get an idea out or just like even write out a brainstorm just to have it out. Mm-hmm. So I would I would say those are some of my coping mechanisms because I just very, I'm, I'm very grateful and thankful that I have positive coping mechanisms that are not detrimental um, for the most part to anyone else or, or myself. And then, you know, just, I just have this faith, I have this faith and belief in God. And I believe that he, I think of that parable, and I've, I don't know the verses or nothing, but it was like the parable of the talents or whatever. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how I, I, I loosely remember it was like something like he gave people. It's basically who, who, who we are is, 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 is God's gift to us. Mm-hmm. And who we become is our gift to God. That's like a, a mm-hmm. quote. I don't know what it is. But it's, that's basically the, 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 the theme of the parable of the talents. So, I do believe that I'm talented, I'm blessed, I'm able-bodied, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm healthy and all, especially like in this pandemic, like a lot of people are not in for, you know. So I, I do, 
I'm very grateful and appreciative. So I do have a belief in God that she, <laughs> she, he, or whatever, gender right. surpasses the understanding of of the infinite spirit or whatever. But anyways, uh, that is also a coping mechanism. It's just like having that faith and belief in God and prayer and, 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 and meditation. So I would say therapy, self-medicating, pleasure-seeking, creating, and uh, executing inspiration and, and having that faith and belief in God. Yeah, therapy is dope too. And I know this is, this podcast is getting really long. So if you're still listening, sorry, <laughs> sorry and thank you. But, uh, uh, Antoine Fisher came to speak to my uh, Black identity and culture class when I was at TSU. Mm-hmm. And he said that when the movie came out, a lot of his family members was calling him up for advice. And he kept telling them, go to therapy, go to therapy, go to therapy, go to therapy, go to therapy. Go to therapy. And they're like, man... But you, 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 you been through a whole bunch of shit. So I thought that you, you be able to like school me on what I should do. <laughs> and he was like, nah, like I don't have anything to tell you. Like my experience and my journey was mine. Mm-hmm. You have your own. And then he was like, he was like, we are, are human beings and we have different levels to it. It's like mm-hmm. so, if you fall down the steps and break your leg. They don't say, "Oh, you be all right. You be all right. You don't gotta. Mm-hmm. You don't gotta go to the doctor. You don't have to go to physical therapy. You don't have to put on the cast. Mm-hmm. Go to a doctor, put on a cast. They tell you how long it has to be. And they say what you got to do to make your leg work right again. It's like so. If your heart is broken, if you go through some type of emotional trauma, mm-hmm. we go without treating it." We don't talk about it. We, there's no cast for our emotions, but mm-hmm. we need to have a well-rounded approach to our well-being, our well-beings as humans. We have an emotional side, physical side, sexual side, you know, spiritual side. We have all these aspects of ourselves that need to be as healthy as they can be. Mm-hmm. So, um, one day there therapy is not going to have the stigma and I just I mean I've been going to therapy yeah for like like five years every every Tuesday therapy Tuesdays <laughs> but I think the more that we talk about therapy as black people I think the stigma will go away I agree because I feel like you know most of the white people that I know they go to therapy and they're very open about it yeah right and so I don't feel that they have the same stigma as when a black person is like, I go to therapy or if your friend, you know, your friend is going through trauma or a family member and you're like, have you talked to someone about that? And I was surprised, like, I think, yeah, it was last year <laughs> I was sitting and he was talking about. <laughs> oh, no, you broke up a little bit, who? Uncle Gifford. Oh, okay. And he was just like talking about someone in our family, like they need to go to therapy. Like that's important. You know, there are people that can help with this thing. Like, I mean, he was very like an advocate of this, you know? Nice. 
And I was like completely stunned, you know, because I was just like, gosh, I never, you know, would have thought, but he was just very matter of fact about this. And, and I was just like, okay, this is amazing that, you know, we are, that we can talk about, you know, therapy and people's emotional and mental health, you know, yeah. um, in a positive way without it being, you know, like something's wrong with you. Yeah. So that was like really inspiring. I love it when, you know, you're adults and then you start seeing your relatives in a different light and you have those moments with them and you're like, wow, I never, you know, this yeah. is so different than when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, me too. Just like even talking with dad and stuff, and my mom and dad is just like, Oh, this is cool. And I, and one more thing, I know it's still getting long, but um, you just made me think about I, even if you go to church and you have a pastor to talk to, mm-hmm. it's still important to go to a trained oh, yes. therapist. Mm-hmm. I know I have talked to some people and they're like, oh, I don't need to go to therapy. I just pray. <laughs> I don't need to go to therapy. I just go to church. And I'm like, all right. I mean, that's cool, but you're bringing up some things and you're going through some things and you're having some issues that I think therapy will definitely, it's not going to hurt. I definitely find the right therapist. If you're open with open, open and you're honest, you're willing to do the work. It will make a difference. It will make a difference. And like pastors, most of the time are not trained as therapists. (laughs) Like, oh, I'm going to pray for you. Okay, but I still have this issue. Right. So you definitely, I agree, need someone who is trained that can guide you through uh, certain issues. And they have that skill set. And then having your counseling with your pastor will enhance that, not replace therapy. Yes. <laughs> It all helps. It all helps. It all helps. It all definitely helps. And we really need that because I feel like there's so much talk, especially now, if you look at the news, it just seems all at times just so hopeless. And it doesn't have to be. Mm -hmm. I still remain hopeful that we can through this project, other creative outlets, other professional outlets as a society that we can overcome the illness in our society. Me too. And I, I just truly, truly believe that because these types of behaviors, yes, some of them are systemic, and then some of them are taught. And when you put those together, that is definitely uh, not a good solution. But I'm hoping that these podcasts will open people's eyes about what does it look like to go through life being looked on as a threat. Yeah. You know, and, and that, as I had shared with you before, I had heard Van Jones say, 
that's so interesting that I'm looked on as a threat, but most of the time I'm the one that's being threatened. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's a total. It's a mind trip. It's like a mind game. Yeah. I mean, even that, yeah. do you have any closing remarks about what we discussed today and being a threat and any words of inspiration, any closing thoughts? Nah, I just like thank y'all for listening. Yes, thank you. I'm trying to do this thing where I, I put up, uh, I'm going to do these show notes and exclusive photos on a threat dot online. It's not a threat.com, a threat.org. It's a threat dot online. So you can check that out to see other episodes and pictures and some show notes that I want to put up. So yeah, I'm just going to try to keep this thing going as long as I can and keep it building. And I do want to expand once the world back, once the world opens back up, I'm going to expand this more into the more of the visual components. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to start with this audio component. So again, everyone, thank you for listening. Thank you, Sean, for interviewing your younger brother. Yes, it was my pleasure. <laughs> it was mad late in the A right now. It is, but I'm a night owl, so <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> yeah, so that's what it is. All right. Peace. All right. Love you, sis. Have a good night. You, too. you do the same. All right. Good night.